0: Another episode of Catholic Campus Ministries Summer School Podcast Series. My name is Deacon Matt Newsome, and I'm the Catholic Campus Minister at Western Carolina University. We've been looking in this series at church history, particularly through the lens of the different heresies that the church has come up against. And the reason we've been doing this isn't just because heresies are interesting I mean they are it's it's interesting in terms of learning about history and learning about the different ideas that that people have had some right some wrong um but it has a more practical uh application as well. Uh, I mentioned a quote in our very first episode from St Augustine from the City of God where he he talks about heresies in this way he says. While the hot restlessness of heretics stirs questions about many articles of the Catholic faith, the necessity of defending them forces us both to investigate them more accurately, to understand them more clearly, and to proclaim them more earnestly." And that's been the spirit, I hope, that we've looked at these different heretical movements throughout history. Uh, Because each time the church has come up against a wrong idea, uh, about about God, about Christ, about our salvation, about the nature of the Church. It has then forced the Church to more clearly articulate for us the correct idea, the right teaching. And so, by understanding not just you know the the, pla- the people, the places, the events you know that surround these historical heretical movements, but by understanding why they are wrong. We can better understand our own faith and why the church teaches the truth that it does in in light of these challenges. So that's been the spirit that we've been talking about these heresies in. And as we move forward through time, we've we've been coming in the last couple of episodes to some of the heretical movements of the late Middle Ages, um, such as the Waldensians, um, the uh, uh, the figures John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, uh, some of these later medieval movements that would go on to influence and inspire um, a lot of what we see in the later Protestant Reformation and that's what we're going to be talking about today in this episode is Protestantism. Uh, and before we delve into that I want to make a couple of disclaimers. The first and the most important is that when we talk about Protestantism today, um, we have to be mindful of the fact that unlike you know, these other heresies that we've been talking about, Arianism, Pelagianism, and and so forth. You know, Protestantism is still with us, um, and especially here in the United States, it's it's a very important part of our nation's history and our culture still today. Um, Any Catholic listening to this uh, will undoubtedly have Protestant friends, Protestant family members, um, and so we we have to talk about it in a bit of a different way than than Arians or Pelagians, right? We might we don't know Arians and Pelagians. We might know people who hold those views. We might know people whose understanding of Christ is that he is the greatest of God's creatures, but not himself equal to God. Uh, and that would be Arianism, but they don't hold that because they're an Aryan. They wouldn't consider themselves an Aryan. Or we might know people who believe that you know, you can achieve your eternal salvation if you're a good person, that that's the most important thing. Just if you're good enough, you can, quote, earn your way to heaven. They might not phrase it that way, but in in practice, maybe that's what they believe. And that's Pelagianism. But they wouldn 't identify themselves as a pelagian because these these heretical movements don 't have any kind of organized structure um, they don't they don 't exist in a forceful way today. people who hold those views do so because of you know, a lack of proper Christian formation, um, ignorance, a misunderstanding, um, but they're not uh, formally, you know, an Arian or a Pelagian or a Nestorian or, or what have you. But Protestantism still exists as a very viable force uh, in in the world today. People are very intentionally Protestants, and so um, we just need to be mindful of of that as we we speak about Protestantism, um, and also. Going back to our first episode again, the definition that we we gave of that word heresy and and heretic, we need to be mindful of, uh, because as I mentioned in that first episode, um, you know, heretic is is not considered a polite word, and people generally don't don't use it today. You hear the word heresy, and it calls to mind images of. You know, oppression and and burning people at the stake and, and all of that sort of thing. And that's not what we're after. Um, but I did mention in that episode as well that heresy is a useful word because it allows us to draw a clear distinction between what we do believe and what we don't believe, between orthodox correct belief and heterodox or incorrect belief. And there's nothing wrong. And in, in drawing that distinction, in fact, it can be very helpful and very clear. Um, I'm not one to to brush over the important distinctions. And so we are treating Protestantism as a, as a heresy, as a heretical movement, which it is. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm advocating for going around calling all of your Baptist and Methodist friends, you know, heretics, um, because formally speaking, they aren't. Um, And that's important to realize. Uh, The definition that we gave of heresy at the beginning was, you know, know, a heretic is someone who has a a post-baptismal denial of some essential truth of the Catholic faith. And in order for that to be true of a person, that person has to have received the Catholic faith in order to then deny an aspect of that faith. But for the most part, the Protestants that we know and love today were born and raised in those Protestant communities. And so if someone is born say into a Baptist household and they grow up going to a Baptist church and they learn about Jesus through the Baptist church, they learn about uh, God through the Baptist church, their faith is developed in the Baptist church and they spend their lives as a very faithful Baptist, they can't be accused of heresy because they're not rejecting the Catholic faith because they've never received the Catholic faith. Um, now, this wouldn't be true of, say, that those first-generation Protestants who chose to leave the Catholic Church in order to accept and practice another version of Christianity. Uh, you, you could accuse them of being heretics because of, of that choice, but that's a different situation than, you know, perhaps 99.9% of Protestants today. And so our relationship with Protestants is different, and I just want to be mindful of that uh, from, from the beginning here. The other disclaimer that I want to make is that when we 're talking about protestantism there there is so much to talk about it 's really a, a very broad large scale and and as I mentioned ongoing um, heretical movement within christianity and we just can 't give it a thorough treatment um, in in this single podcast episode, um, even with the the kind of um, very general way that we're going to be treating it. This episode will probably be longer than than some of the others. What I want to focus on in this episode is the, the very beginning of the Protestant movement with Martin Luther and some of his very specific errors that got him in trouble with the church. And uh, and then if we have time, without this episode being too terribly long, I want to talk about the Catholic response to that, uh, specifically with the Council of Trent, um, because that's also part of what we've been doing in this series: is not just looking at the heresy, but then what was the Catholic response to that heresy. So I think it's important that we do that. All right, so let's um, let's dive dive right in here. Um, one of the things that makes Protestantism a little bit different, um, or a lot different, I should say, than some of the other um, heretical movements that we've talked about is the, the, the nature of the challenge that it presented to the church. Most of the, the other heresies that came before this, like Arianism, for example, right? they dealt with a specific issue. So Arianism dealt with a specific issue, is Jesus Christ divine or not? Is he divine? Is he fully God, or is he something less? And so, you know, people would line up along either side of that that divide. They would take sides. The church debated that issue, and and ultimately uh, a correct answer was settled upon. Um, you know, so that's that's kind of the the way that most of these heresies played out, but. Protestantism, and and we started to see this with some of the other late medieval heresies like Waldensianism and and the heresies preached by John Wycliffe and so forth. It didn't attack a single doctrinal truth of the church. Rather, what it was challenging was the nature of the church itself, um, and really, that's a related issue to the nature of Christ because the church is the body of Christ, but. It has a a a different effect in history because by challenging the nature of the church and specifically challenging the nature of the church's authority, you open up the door for all manner of other um, errors to creep in because if you no longer believe if you deny the truth that the church has the authority to teach Christianity as a religion revealed by God, then you don't have to believe that what the church says about anything, and you're you're free to to disagree with the church on on any number of points. And we see this happening um, historically um, within within Protestantism, but uh, but it all started with one man um, who had some specific disagreements with with the church, and that man is is Martin Luther. So who was Martin Luther? Uh, Martin Luther um, was a Catholic priest. He was an Augustinian monk. Um, he was born in the year 1483, um, and the story goes that in the year 1505, he was almost killed by lightning in a storm, and he was so frightened by that experience that he made a hasty vow to St. Anne that he would become a monk if his life were spared, uh, and his life was spared, and so two weeks later, he made good on that vow, he um, he joined the Augustinian order, And then two years later, in the year 1507, he was ordained a priest, Um, he continued his theological studies, Um, he earned his doctorate in the year 1512, Um, and he taught scripture at the German University of Wittenberg. And he became, in short order, THE scripture scholar at Wittenberg. Um, he, He developed quite a reputation for being a scripture scholar. And so while he's there uh, as a professor teaching at Wittenberg, between the years 1512 and 1518, he preached a series of lectures on the Psalms, on, um, on, on St. Paul's letter to the Romans, St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, and the letter to the Hebrews. Um, and as he was preparing for the, these lectures and presenting these lectures, he had a A conversion experience of sorts, uh, a a revelation that would forever shift the direction of his his faith. Um, And and to understand the nature of that, we have to understand a little bit about Martin Luther. Um, He apparently suffered from some sort of a psychological disorder. Uh, now, in general, I'm not a real big fan of, of people who go back and, and look at figures from history and try and psychoanalyze them, uh, because I don't really think that's possible in any kind of an accurate sense. You know, you don't have the person here to, to talk to and to question and to analyze. Um, but, but based on a lot of Martin Luther's own writings uh, and the reports that we have about him, uh, and we have a lot of information about him, Um, He did seem to suffer from some sort of psychological disorder akin to depression, maybe a a bipolar disorder, uh, something like that, uh, that made certain aspects of his life and certain aspects of his faith very difficult. We know from his own testimonies that he uh, seemed to have a lot of trouble accepting God's mercy and forgiveness. Um, He would reportedly go to confession daily sometimes, you know, at length, and uh, and, and sometimes he would go out of the confessional and turn around and and go right back in. He was keenly aware of his own unworthiness before the Almighty God, and did not feel worthy of God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Um, The concept of God's justice frightened him because he knew that justice demanded that sinners be punished and no matter how much Martin Luther tried to live a holy life, no matter how often he went to confession and confessed his sins, he knew that at the core, he was a sinner and therefore he deserved to be punished. And so he, he struggled with this. Um, we Today, we might uh, say Martin Luther suffered from scrupulosity, this um, Scrupulosity has been described as kind of religious OCD, um, this, this heightened awareness of one's own sins and uh, a lack of faith in God's, God's mercy. Um, so Martin Luther suffered with this, and he had a, uh, a revelation when he was meditating upon Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where it's written that the just man lives by faith that if justification was made possible by faith, therefore it's our faith that makes us holy. And it doesn't matter what we do, and it doesn't matter how we live our lives, it doesn't matter how great a sinner we are, if we have faith, we are justified before God, and therefore we'll escape his punishment, his His just punishment. And that revelation became the genesis of what would later become the theological cornerstone of the Reformation, which is sola fide. Sola fide is Latin, it means faith alone. And it's this Protestant doctrine that our salvation is achieved by our faith alone, apart from any good works that that we do. Um, Now, Martin Luther's ideas here are not Radically opposed to Catholic theology, right? At least in their infancy, right? Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with them because the Catholic Church does teach that we are justified by faith. Um, that that much is is very true. Um, we can't earn our salvation. We we don't merit heaven by our good works. None of us is quote good enough uh, to to um, you know to escape God's justice. We're not good enough to go to heaven, um, because that idea was condemned in an earlier heresy. That's what Pelagianism essentially is, this idea that we can earn our way to heaven by doing good works. And the church has condemned that as a heresy. So the church doesn't believe that. Uh, The church does believe that we are justified by faith, but not by faith alone, which is what Martin Luther would come to profess. And, And that's where he, gets at odds with the church, is by taking something that is true in and, of, in and of itself, but then isolating it from other truths. So, for example, you know, while in, in Romans, Paul does say that we are justified by faith, in the epistle of James, uh, uh, St. James writes uh, in James 2.24, see how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, And in fact, that verse in James is the only time in all of sacred scripture where you find the, the words faith and alone side by side. And it's for James to say, you know, see how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, we don't believe that a person is justified by works alone either. As I said, that's Pelagianism, and that's a heresy. So it's this combination. It's, it's our faith, which is necessary for our salvation, working in conjunction with our good works. It's, it's faith and action. Um, and uh, And I recommend you read the book of james uh, the epistle of james to to see how he treats this um, a little bit more um, in fact i 'll put a, a a link on our website to um, uh, a blog post that I made. Um, uh, last year where I talk about this a little bit and I tie it into Matthew's gospel uh in, in the 25th chapter of Matthew's gospel there at the end when Jesus is describing the last judgment and He shows us as being judged worthy of either heaven or hell based on the the works of mercy the works of charity that we have done whether or not we um, You know Uh, gave food to the hungry, gave drink to the thirsty, welcomed the stranger, and and so forth and so on. So, you know, we don't base our theology just by taking one verse out of Scripture uh, out of context, but rather we look at the Scriptures as a whole and see how does this all fit in together and, and teach us about our faith. So it's not, the Catholic Church didn't reject Martin Luther's proposition that we are justified by faith, but rather his proposition that we are justified by faith alone. Okay? Um, but here at the beginning of, of this process, um, Martin Luther, you know, he was not a, a heretic at this point. He wasn't the founder of Protestantism, uh, you know, at this point. He was just a, he was a Catholic priest. He was an Augustinian monk. He was a professor um, at, at Wittenberg University, and he was just starting to develop a theology that would put him at odds with his own church. The great conflict where this would kind of come to a head would come about a little bit later on as the result of some very loud criticisms that Luther would make against the Catholic Church over the practice of indulgences. So we need to talk a little bit about indulgences to understand this. The idea of indulgences had been around for a long, long time and in and indeed it 's still part of Catholic theology in practice today. We still practice indulgences. We today have a more developed understanding of the theology of indulgences than they had in luther 's day, um, primarily because of this uh, controversy that uh, that that Martin Luther um, uh, was kind of in the middle of right. Um, it allowed the church to kind of more clearly state what it is that we believe about indulgences. but the basic idea of an indulgence is this. An indulgence is the remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sin that has already been forgiven. And, and I'll say that again. An indulgence is the remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sin that has already been forgiven. And that's, that's a catechism definition. Um, and uh, the key elements here are, number one, that it's sin that has already been forgiven. Right? That means if you've committed a sin, you, you still have to go to confession, confess your sin, be forgiven sacramentally in the context of confession. Um, and the punishment that's being remitted is the temporal punishment. Temporal means in time. In other words, this is not the eternal punishment. The eternal punishment, that punishment outside of time uh, for sin is, is damnation. It's eternity apart from God, it's hell. And that punishment, you know which ultimately is the only punishment that matters, right? That punishment is remitted through the act of forgiveness in in sacramental confession, but that doesn't mean that there might not still be um, just punishment that is due in time, right? In time. Um, Think about it this way. I I like to use this example. Let's say you and I are friends and we we get into an argument and you get so mad after this argument that you you storm out of my house and you slash all the tires on my car in your anger. Um, It's a very mean thing to do, right? Um, But then you, you calm down and you repent of that anger. You repent of the unjust action that you did in your anger and you come back to me and you... You confess what you did, and you apologize, you say you're sorry, and you say, Deacon Matt, will you forgive me? And I'm a nice guy, so I say, yes, I will forgive you. Okay, in your violent act of slashing my tires, two things were damaged. Two things were damaged. One, obviously, my tires were damaged. But two, and more importantly, our relationship was damaged, right? Because you you acted against the good of our relationship. And so, by coming to me and asking forgiveness, and then by me extending that forgiveness, um, our relationship has been restored. And our relationship is much, much, much more important than the tires on my car. So we're good. Our friendship is good, right? However, I still have slashed tires on my car, right? Our, you know, the healing of our relationship, the forgiveness that, that I was able to offer and that you were able to receive doesn't magically erase the damage that was done by your sinful action. And so that act still needs to be addressed. My, my car needs new tires. And in justice, who should fix those tires? Or who should pay to have those tires fixed? Well, you, right? Because you're the one that slashed them. So I can forgive you but still expect you to pay to have the tires fixed. And in fact, if you weren't willing to do so, if you say I'm really sorry I did that, but you're not actually willing to to do anything to to remedy the the harm caused by your action, how sincere are you really in your repentance? And so, repentance, you know, should manifest itself in uh, a spirit a, a willingness to um, undo the harm that 's been done to pay for it in some way um, if that's possible now can i in 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 a spirit of mercy and generosity say no don't worry about it i'll i'll pay for it you know i I know you don 't have a lot of money I know that you're you 're struggling this month or whatever i you know it's it's no big deal i 'll pay for the tires right sure I can do that or could I say, you know what? I'll, I'll, you know, I know that's going to be hard for you to pay back the, for the tires. I tell you what, I'll pay for half if you can pay for the other half. Can I do that? Sure, I can do that, right? And that's those those actions are especially merciful on my part. Um, it, it goes above and beyond the demands of justice, and that's kind of what the church is doing with indulgences. Uh, an indulgence is a gift from the church to an individual penitent, and and the idea is that the church is the custodian of all the merits won by christ and the saints and those merits are infinite that christ and the saints have done acts that are infinitely pleasing to god and the church holds the powers of the keys that were that power granted to her by christ and can apply out of the infinite excess of these merits to what might be lacking in the the efforts of an individual penitent and that indulgence would relieve the penitent of the burden of paying whatever that temporal debt, that, that punishment in time, that is due for their sins. Um, and this whole idea of merit, too, before God, I, you know, we should talk about that just very briefly. Um, we don't have time to go into detail about it because, uh, again, I use that word in a certain sense because... It's true, we cannot merit anything before God. You and I can't merit anything before God. We can never earn our way to heaven, and that's because we're not equal with God. Um, for us to merit any sort of favor um, to God implies that, that we can be in a position where God owes us something, and you and I can never be in that position because we're, we're as creatures, we are so far below the Creator that the creator doesn't owe us a thing in fact we owe him everything um you know i think about our relationship with lesser creatures i raise chickens and you know i care for my chickens i provide them a good you know a good life but there's absolutely nothing that one of my chickens is going to do that's going to put me in a position where i owe that chicken something right because it's a chicken and i'm a human being and we're not on the same level Um, but another human being yeah, absolutely. Can can be in a position where I owe that human being something um, out of justice. Um, say I, I contract with, with with a person to come and, and do yard work for me to mow my lawn, and we agree on a certain pay. And he comes and he mows my lawn. Um, you know, justice demands that I, I pay him what we agreed upon. Um, I'm in a position where I owe him. He has merited my favor by his good works, and we can do that because we're equals, we're equal in dignity. Um, but you and I are not equal in dignity before God, and we, we can't be equal in dignity before God, because he is he's transcendent, he's almighty, he's omnipotent, he is creator, we are mere creatures. But you know who is equal in dignity to God? That's Christ. Jesus Christ is equal to God in all things and he, through his good works, through his meritorious actions, especially his actions on the cross, he can merit favor before God and he does so on our behalf. You know, at the the scene of his baptism, we hear, you know, we see the heavens open and we hear God's voice say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God is pleased with the actions of his son and when we put on Christ through our baptism, we become part of his body, and we share in that favor. And so the good works that we do, they also merit God's favor, not because of who we are, but because of who we are in Christ. Right, And so there's, there's a word for that, a theological word for that. It's called codine merit. And it just acknowledges the fact that it's not our good works that God is rewarding, but it's that good work done in Christ. It's Christ's works within us that give God pleasure. And so the point here right now is that... Combined with all of the good works of the saints and the good works of Christ himself, there's an infinite storehouse of of merit available for the church. And the church is not stingy with this. And the church grants this to to any of those who, in their own individual efforts, and their own individual penances, might might need that assistance, might need that help in growing in holiness. Um, And that's all that this is about, is about growing in holiness. Um, We know that everyone who enters into heaven is is holy. And we also know that there's there's a difference between being perfectly holy and being forgiven. You can be forgiven from your sins, but still have a lot of this temporal attachment to your sins. You could still be a work in progress. And if you die in God's grace, and you die forgiven of your sins, but not yet perfectly purified, not yet perfectly holy, God will continue that work in you so that you're made holy before you enter into heaven. This is what we believe purgatory is. Right, and so an indulgence is seen as um, uh, a way to ease the, the the suffering and the time that someone will spend in in purgatory. So, indulgences is wrapped up in that doctrine as well, our our doctrine of purgatory. You see how this all feeds in together, right? To really get a good understanding of the Catholic theology of this, it's not enough just to know what we teach about indulgences, or enough about you know what we teach about purgatory, but you have to understand what we teach about grace, what we teach about mercy, what we teach about forgiveness, what we for- teach about holiness it's all connected right it's like a it's like a Jenga puzzle and if you pull out one piece of that puzzle the whole thing might fall down and and what Martin Luther was doing by saying that we are justified by faith alone apart from good works as he's he's pulling out a piece of that that Jenga tower and when he challenges the church on indulgences he's pulling out a piece of that that Jenga tower Um, all right I've gotten a little bit off you know off track here so let's bring it back down Martin Luther is is making some specific complaints about indulgences that you know, were not necessarily all theological. A lot of the complaints that he was making about indulgences were practical. They, they were complaints about the way that indulgences were being treated and promoted in the church at his time. And, and Martin Luther was not the only one making these complaints. During his time There was a a plenary indulgence, and that means a a full indulgence, um, a remission of all the temporal punishment due to sin, that was being promoted, that was attached to giving alms to the church for the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, the the acts to which the church um, would traditionally attach an indulgence tend to be good, pious actions. Making a pilgrimage, spending time in prayer, reading the scriptures, uh, and donating alms. Giving alms is one such act. And when we think about giving alms, typically the understanding is this is money that's going to the aid of the poor. And you would give the alms to the church, and then the church would dispense those alms to the poor in a way that would be most helpful to them. But in this specific case, the alms that were being given to the church were going to, to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to give money to the church to build a beautiful uh, basilica or a cathedral or even just a parish church. Um, I'm not one of these that, that argues that the church shouldn't have beautiful architecture and beautiful sacred vestments and sacred vessels for the liturgy. Um, you know, Sometimes you'll run across these arguments that all the money spent on beautiful art, beautiful architecture in the church should rather be given to the poor. You know, and that's the exact argument that Judas made um, you know, to Mary Magdalene when she was you know, using her expensive oil to anoint the feet of Jesus. He says, hey, that could have been sold and given to the poor. And Christ's response was, you know, the poor you will always have, but I'm, I'm with you only a short time. Um, and, uh, you know, the counter argument to that is, you know, the poor also deserve beautiful places to worship. Um, and, uh, and also, it's true that we can do both, right? Just because we are uh, um, giving of our, of our time and our talent and our treasure to build beautiful houses of worship for God, doesn't mean that we're not also giving of our time and talent and treasure to aid in the poor. We can do both. These things are not mutually exclusive but nevertheless in this time the way that this indulgence was being preached to raise money for saint peter's basilica it was different because it wasn't i'm going to give alms to the church to distribute to the poor but i'm going to give alms to the church for use by the church and so what it could very 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 easily look like is that i'm paying the church money for this indulgence and that is a sin called simony. Simony is the sin of, of attempting to purchase a spiritual good. That is against church law. That is against the law of God. Uh, the sin simony takes its name from Simon Magus in the book of Acts, who attempts to do just this with the apostles. He wants to pay the apostles for a share in their spiritual graces, their spiritual power. And by attempting to do that, he's struck dead by God. And so and now he has a sin named after him. You don't want to be that guy that gets a sin named after you, right? Um, so he, that's the sin of simony. And so it appeared for all intents and purposes that what was being practiced and promoted by the church was simony. And so you had a lot of people in the church that were reacting very negatively to this. Um, and the people who were going about and preaching these, this indulgence and promoting this indulgence weren't exactly doing a lot to dispel that image. Um, probably the worst offender, the most infamous, is uh, a Dominican by the name of Johannes Tetzel. And he's the one who supposedly coined the phrase, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. You know, they they were very rather lax. And, making sure that the faithful understood the proper theology of indulgences and understood things like you know you have to be in a state of grace you have to have gone to confession uh, in order to receive this indulgence um you know they were more concerned with just getting the money um and uh and remember too we've been talking about this the past couple of episodes a lot of people in the church in the upper echelons right the higher ranking you know levels of bishops had a a justified reputation for being corrupt, for being overly attached to to money and material wealth. Um, Pluralism and absenteeism that we talked about in earlier episodes, right? This practice of a bishop being bishop of more than one diocese at a time, and then consequently not actually being physically present in the diocese that he was responsible for, that was still a major issue in Martin Luther's day. And the reason that they would have these multiple dioceses is because the diocese was their source of income, and that would that would just bring in more money for them and a lot of these bishops, in order to allow the um, the Vatican to preach this indulgence to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica in their territories would demand that they keep a share of the alms raised in in their diocese and so you know they skim their share off the top so You know, there was a lot of corruption attached to this um, that that people saw, people realized, and a lot of people, good faithful people within the church um, reacted negatively against. Um, And Martin Luther certainly reacted negatively against this too. I mean, he was offended by this idea that you could somehow purchase forgiveness for sins because even though that's not what an indulgence is, that's what it looked like. And that's how it was being promoted. And to him, right who Who was so afraid of the justice of God and who was so scrupulous about his own sins, the idea that you know forgiveness is something that could just be purchased by the wealthy um, was was just horribly offensive it was it, you know sin is not a trivial manner and and Martin Luther was keenly aware of that. so what happened the year fifteen seventeen this all came to a head. Martin Luther wrote up a list of 95 points, this is the famous 95 theses, 95 points that he was was critiquing the church on, primarily around this issue of, of the sale of indulgences. And he nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg. Uh, and a lot of times this is portrayed as a real in your face kind of challenge to the church, you know, in, in films about Martin Luther's life and things. You know, you see Martin Luther coming up to the church the very door of the church itself with a hammer and bang, 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 you know, proclaiming his his statement there. Um, in reality, in the context of, of the University of Wittenberg, what Luther does here is not such an unusual thing. The the church there in Wittenberg is right on the main square in the university. Um, the door functioned essentially like a, like a bulletin board in a modern-day college campus. It's where all kinds of notices were put up because people would walk through those doors every day. It's, it's where you would put something if you wanted it to be seen. And it was fairly common practice for the, the professors there to put notices up on the church door of things that they wanted to have a debate about that they wanted to have public discourse about. And that's what Luther was doing here. So it was a very common thing. Um, but the other thing that Luther did though is he made copies of his 95 Theses. Because the printing press had been invented by this point, it was easy to, to make copies of things. So he made copies of his 95 Theses and he sent them out to bishops, he sent them out to theologians. Uh, and so it really reached a, a broader audience than just the you, you know, the, the university community there in Wittenberg. And a lot of nine, uh, Luther's 95 points were very legitimate, and they addressed areas of real problems within the church that needed addressing, that a lot of people agreed with Luther on. But some of those 95 points attacked the church's theology and in a way that was in error, and that's where Luther tended to get himself in trouble. Um, for example, one of the points that he made is that an indulgence doesn't actually remit the temporal punishment due to sin. It can only remit any kind of canonical punishment that the church might impose due to sin, uh, referring to canon law. So any any punishment that the church herself might impose in canon law for a particular offense, the church could remit that punishment because that punishment was, you know, um, uh, was, was imposed by the church. But the church doesn't actually have the authority to remit you know, um, any kind of divine punishment uh, due to sin. Um, only God can do that, not the church. So he's not just questioning the theology of indulgences there, but he's also calling into question the authority of the church, the nature of the church's authority. Um, so um, the pope, you know, caught wind of this and wanted to to see what was going on. And he sent a man named Cardinal Cajetan to Germany to meet with Luther. Um, That meeting happened in the year 1518. Um, and discuss these issues, discuss some of Martin Luther's concerns. And Cajetan was a good man to send. He was was a moderate man. Um, he had a very well developed theological understanding of the nature of indulgences. Um, he didn't subscribe to a lot of the the popular um, misconceptions um, surrounding indulgences uh, of the day. Uh, and he had also read a lot of Luther's writings, and so he was familiar with Luther's um, background. Uh, and so the the two met. And during this exchange, um, Luther started to assert other erroneous teachings. Um, For example, he um, would appeal to scripture uh, as the basis of where he's getting all of uh, his theological ideas above and beyond the teachings of, of a pope or a church council. He was holding that it's possible for a pope or a church council to teach wrongly, But it's impossible for scripture to be wrong. Um, And so the specific issue where this was coming from is he taught that the sacrament of reconciliation, confession or penance, was dependent upon the faith of the penitent. If the penitent's faith was not sufficient, he would not actually be forgiven. And of course, that's not how the sacraments work, right? The The Catholic faith maintains that the sacraments give grace in and of themselves. They're not dependent upon the faith of the one receiving them. Now, the faith of the one receiving the sacrament can have an impact in the fruits that that sacrament bears out in that person's life, because grace does not impose anything, right? God requires us to cooperate with his grace, and so a lack of faith on the part of the penitent may prevent that penitent from fully cooperating in the grace that God gives, but God still gives the grace, the sacrament still works. The, the effectiveness of the sacrament is not dependent upon the, the worthiness or the faithfulness of the one receiving it. Um, but no, Luther said that grace can only be given if the one receiving it believed that he was receiving that grace. Um, and so you know, and, and to bolster that, that point, he would appeal to Scripture um, and and say, this is my understanding of, of Scripture, the church is wrong, you know, on this. So in the end, Cajetan asked Luther to, to recant on two points. The first being the requirement that you have to have sufficient faith in order to receive the grace of the sacraments. And the second is the idea that the church did not have the authority to dispense from that treasury of merit obtained by Christ and the saints, um, having to do with with Luther's understanding of indulgences. And Luther refused on both of those points. He he appealed to um, his interpretation of scripture and refused to back down. So that same year, 1518, towards the end of the year in November, the Pope issued a document that clarified what the church taught about indulgences. It was called cum postquam. And uh, this was specifically to address a lot of the points that were being raised around uh, how indulgences were being mistreated to to clarify, this is what we actually teach about indulgences. But Luther would continue to maintain his own position about this, um, and he made an appeal to a, a general council of the church. He said, we need another council to settle this, because he thought that the council would have the ability to overturn the authority of a pope. And that led to a lot of further debate uh, of, among theologians about um, uh, not just indulgences at this time, but about the nature of the church. Who is the authoritative interpreter of scripture? If the church is the authoritative interpreter of scripture, and that authority resides in the Bishop of Rome, in, in the pontiff, then Martin Luther ought to acknowledge that the teaching of the church on indulgences is true, as outlined in in this document, cum posquam. But if the church does not have the authority to interpret the scripture then maybe Martin Luther is right and maybe Martin Luther is interpreting scripture correctly and maybe the church is wrong Um, and you know this is kind of getting down to the whole point of where do we find authority right where do we where does the authority lie so Luther was starting to maintain that scripture is the only authority that can never be an error and therefore scripture is the only authority that he would recognize Now we talked a little bit about this last week, um, I believe, about how saying that scripture is an authority is a misuse of that term authority, because authority can only reside in persons. Authority requires a will to be expressed and enforced, Um, and scripture as a text is not an authority. It can be authoritative. You can have an authoritative text. It can be inerrant, meaning without any errors. And as Catholics, we certainly believe that scripture is both of those things. Um, we believe that scripture is the inspired word of God. But having an authoritative text um, means that you also have to have an authority to interpret that text. Because you know, as we know from just experience, different people can read the same passage in the Bible and come to different conclusions about it. Um, so what luther is saying is that what the how the church reads the scriptures is wrong and how he reads the scriptures is correct and he's appealing to scripture as his authority but in truth his authority is himself because what he's appealing to is his interpretation of scripture and he's saying that my reading of scripture is superior to the church's reading of of scripture that's the crux of the issue who has the authority to interpret what is and is not true christian doctrine okay so it's becoming apparent to a lot of people at this stage that that what luther is professing is not the same faith that's taught by the catholic church and that one side or the other has to be has to be wrong has to be an error luther's definitive break comes in the year 1520 and in that year he publishes three different tracts the first is called the Address to the German Nobility, the second is called the Babylonian Captivity, and the third is called the Freedom of the Christian Man. In that first document, the Address to the, Christian, to the German Nobility, he argues that the authority of the church is not superior to secular authorities. He argues that the Pope and the bishops are not the only ones who are able to interpret scriptures with authority. Um, he denies the liturgical priesthood, the hierarchical priesthood, rather I should say, um, you know the ordained priesthood, and he says that all of the faithful um, are priests, and therefore. All of the faithful have this ability to interpret scripture and decide Christian doctrine. And the, the bishops in the church aren't special in that regard. And therefore, if they have gone astray, it belongs to the nobility, who do have legitimate secular authority that Luther believes was ordained by God, to correct the church, to step in and correct the church. So he's making an appeal to the nobility. And here again, a lot of what he's saying you know, has its, has a kernel of truth to it, because the Catholic Church also teaches in something called the priesthood of all believers. We do believe that all those who have been baptized share in Christ's priesthood and in very real and significant ways, but that doesn't mean that there is not such a thing as the ministerial priesthood who shares in Christ's authority in a special way. Um, those two ideas can coexist within the church, um, but Luther is now taking this one truth of the baptismal priesthood, and he's denying the reality of the other truth, that of the, the ministerial priesthood, in an attempt to um, find support among the German nobility for his rebellion against the church. Um, there's this common misconception um, that, that people tend to have that Protestantism um, succeeded as kind of this grassroots populist movement with people kind of throwing off the oppressive bonds of Catholicism um. But in reality, Protestantism succeeded where it succeeded, because it had the support of the nobility. It was a, a top-down movement. Um, in any country where the, the ruling classes, the, the nobility, uh, got on board with Protestantism and embraced Protestantism, those countries became Protestant. But in countries where the ruling classes did not and they remained Catholic, those countries also remained, remained Catholic. So um, Luther in this document is addressing this call to reform the church to the nobility as opposed of to, to the church. Okay. Uh, the second tract that Luther wrote um, was called The Babylonian Captivity, and this one goes into a lot more detail on Luther's sacramental theology. Uh, in brief, he denied the sacraments of confirmation, of matrimony, of holy orders, and anointing of the sick. Um, he he denied that any of those were sacraments, and the reason being that he said he couldn't find any support for for those being sacraments in scripture. So he believed that baptism, Eucharist, and confession were sacraments, um, but again with a different understanding than what the Catholic Church teaches. Um, for, we've already said that he thought confession was only valid uh, if the the penitent had sufficient faith. Um, He further explains here that it's not even necessary that you confess your sins to a priest. You can confess your sins to anyone and be forgiven if you had sufficient faith. And that kind of follows because he didn't believe in in a ministerial priesthood anymore. And so if there's no sacred priesthood, then there's no priest to confess your sins to. Um, So... You know, he challenges the church's teachings on sacraments in in that document. And in the third document, the freedom of the Christian man, um, Luther emphasizes here that it's faith alone that saves us, uh, apart from from good works. Um, A Christian uh, participates in good works and obeys God's commands because of his faith, but he's not saved by doing so. Doing those things does not in any way, shape or form contribute to his salvation, that that is a function of his faith alone. Um, and he further argues in this document that as a free person, a Christian is subject to no authority, um, uh, in terms of his religion other than the gospels themselves. Um, and of course, what he means is, you know, his Lutheran interpretation of the gospels. Um, but, uh, he's, he's making his declaration here that it's not necessary for the Christian to be subject to the authority of the church. So, um, just to kind of sum things up here, because we don't have time to go through the rest of Martin Luther's life, um, but here we see by fifteen twenty, kind of the core tenets of of his his doctrines. His first one, first and primary one, was sola fide, this idea that we're justified by faith alone, and the the second one is sola scriptura, uh, this idea that scripture alone is our authority for for the faith, right. Um, and, you know, that becomes the real core issue is, is what is the authority in our faith? Because if you say scripture is our authority, that doesn't really leave you with a definite authority because, well, whose interpretation of scripture? And so we see within that first generation of, of Protestantism, uh, a great splintering happening as different people kind of follow Luther's example in um, denying the authority of the church, but they don't necessarily follow what Martin Luther is teaching. They have their own ideas and they set up their own churches and in their own movements. And so within Martin Luther's lifetime, you see um, at least five other uh, Protestant sects, major Protestant sects, Um, coming about. Um, There was Lutheranism that was founded by Martin Luther, uh, but there was also um, uh, Calvinism, there was Zwingliism, there was uh, the Anglican uh, Church, uh, started by Henry VIII in England, and then there were the Anabaptists, which is the the predecessor of the modern-day Baptist Church. And all five of these Protestant uh, movements disagreed with one another um, about as as harshly as they disagreed with the Catholic Church, um, in fact, in some instances they were were closer to the Catholic Church than they were to to one another on certain points so for example, the Anabaptists were so named because they, they re-baptized people. They didn't believe in infant baptism. Um, and so if you were baptized as an infant, they would baptize you again when you joined their movement. And so they were called the, the rebaptizers or Anabaptists. Um, but the other Protestant um, groups all baptized infants like, uh, like the Catholic Church did because they had a similar understanding of the sacrament of baptism. Um, uh, Zwingli uh, denied the real presence in the Eucharist. Um, Now, Martin Luther had a different understanding of the Eucharist than the Catholic Church does. He um, didn't believe in transubstantiation, that the the bread and wine are have their substances fully transformed into the body and blood of Christ he believed in something called consubstantiation which um, uh, upholds that the body and blood of Christ is really present but the bread and wine are also really present too and so what you have are two substances that are coexisting bread and wine along with the body and blood of Christ consubstantiation Um, whereas Ulrich Zwingli taught that it was purely symbolic the real presence was not there at all and Martin Luther famously said that he would rather drink blood with the Papists than wine with the Zwinglians, um, using the, the kind of derogatory term for, the Catholic, uh, for Catholics at that time, Papists. He'd rather drink blood with the Papists than wine with the Zwinglians. So, you know, the, the Protestant different groups were at odds with each other just as much as they were in, you know, with the Catholic Church. And that splintering has continued to grow. It's, it's continued to grow and multiply and multiply and multiply. There are hundreds of Protestant denominations that exist today um, all because, you know, one group of Protestants had a disagreement with another group of Protestants over some point of doctrine or theology or church practice, and so the answer is just to to split and, and start another movement rather than come to some conciliar uh, agreement and consensus. So sometimes you'll see uh, figures of like 20,000, 30,000 different Protestant denominations, and when you just think of kind of the mainstream Protestant denominations, you might think, well, that's, that's a bit much, that's exaggerated. Um, but most of the mainstream Protestant denominations that we're familiar with themselves are actually subdivided into multiple different denominations that aren't necessarily in communion with one another. Um, so there's no such thing, for example, as the Presbyterian Church. There are multiple different Presbyterian denominations. There's no such thing as um, you know, Anglicanism, period, right? There's different Anglican communions, Episcopalianism, and, and so forth and so on. There's a lot of division, and this is true of Lutherans, it's true of Baptists, it's true of, of all of them. Um, and, uh, and then we have the rise today of the kind of non-denominational independent churches, um, which effectively each individual congregation is its own denomination. And so when you think about that, that 20,000, 30,000 figure starts to sound a little bit more valid. Um, I don't know where those numbers come from. Um, I do have a book that I use as a reference in my office called The Handbook of Denominations in the United States. Uh, I find it as a handy reference because sometimes I'm, I encounter someone who's from a church that I've never heard of before. And I'm like, okay, well, where did that church come from? What do they believe? And so I'll look it up and read a little bit about their history. And this book only is dealing with denominations in the United States, and it's got over 200 entries in it. And so, you know, even if that were how many there were, 200, that's still 199 more churches than Jesus founded. So division in in the church um, has just really grown rampant um, ever since the Protestant uh, movement. Um, and we're still, like I said, experiencing that further division today. And I don't think that's what Martin Luther wanted. Um, in the early years of the Reformation, there wasn't this sense that, okay, we're going to break away and start our own thing. Um, it was seen as an inter conflict. It was seen as an issue that would eventually get resolved. And, you know, um, one side would be proven right, one side would be proven wrong, but ultimately there would still be one church that was still intact. And that, uh, unfortunately, is not what happened, again, because the nature of this particular heresy is not, you know, about just one particular point of doctrine where there's a difference on, but it's on the nature of the church itself. It's on the nature of the church itself. And when your argument is that the, the institutional church does not have the authority to teach in the name of Christ, does not have the authority given to her by God to, to maintain and proclaim this revealed religion, then why should you listen to the church about anything? Why don't you just listen to your own ideas and do your own thing? And and this is what we kind of see, see happening. So, um, what's the church's response to this? Let's see if we can go through this kind of briefly. Um, the church's response um, essentially is, it comes about in the Council of Trent. Um, so we'll talk about the Council of Trent. Um, the Council of Trent is, is the most important aspect of what um, historians will refer to either as the Counter-Reformation, or sometimes more charitably as the Catholic Reformation. Really, it's the true Reformation. Um, referring to the, the Protestant Reformation as a Reformation is a bit of a misnomer because reform movements, by definition, take place within the church. They're reforming the church. There's some aspect of the church um, that that needs reform. Um, and, and Catholics aren't shy about admitting this. The church is always in need of reform because the church, while it is a divine institution and as such, has certain charisms has certain authority and is a pure and good and holy institution it's also a human institution you know it's 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 human and divine working in conjunction with one another and the human element of the church is made up of sinful people and it at times does need reform and so there have been continuously throughout the life of the church various different reform movements that have attempted to bring the church to a fuller degree of holiness to a, a greater degree of consistency with the faith that she professed um, you know so historians will talk about the Cluniac reforms of the 12th century that, that came out of the monastery at Cluny. Um, you can look at the foundings of like the Franciscan Order uh, or the Benedictine Order even earlier um, as, as reform movements within the church. The church has constantly been in, in reform, but Protestantism is not a reform movement. It's a rebellion against church authority. Um, it's, it's a revolution, as you, as you, uh, if you want to use that term, um, but it's not a reform of the Catholic Church. The actual reform of the Catholic Church takes place a little bit later with the Council of, of Trent. And in fact, a lot of people will look at the Council of Trent and what it did, what it accomplished, and they'll look at Luther's 95 Theses and they'll say, well, this is the reform that Martin Luther wanted. Um, and I've even heard it argued that if Martin Luther were alive today and you know were looking for a church to join, he'd probably join the Catholic Church because he'd find that to be the most familiar. Um, so the Council of Trent begins in the year 1545. Uh, now Luther becomes a public figure in the year 1517. So there's there's almost 30 years difference between when this controversy started and when the Council of Trent begins. You might ask, well, why? Why did the church wait for so long? Um, well, a lot of different reasons. first of all, like I just said, initially it wasn 't clear how big of an issue this was um, it wasn 't until things started to kind of explode and get out of hand and and other um, people like John calvin and, and so forth started to take up this mantle of rebellion and and um, uh, deny the the legitimacy of church authority that this really got out of hand. Initially, this was just seen as a debate within the church that would eventually be settled within the church. It wasn't clearly understood that a council was necessary. Um, another reason why it took so long is you know, the church in general doesn't move real quickly. It's a slow-moving organism and by and large that's a pretty good thing because you don't want the church making hasty decisions about, about stuff. Um, another reason is at this time there was a real hesitancy among the you know the powers that be in the church to call another council. Um, there was fear of of something called conciliarism. Conciliarism is this idea that the primary authority of the church lies in a church council, in a ecumenical council, and that ecumenical council even outranked the authority of the pope and could even overturn the um, uh, the teachings of a pope. Um, this. Idea, the idea was a result of a lot of what we 've talked about previously with the Avignon papacy in the fourteenth century that led to the the great Western schism uh, at the end of the fourteenth century and early fifteenth century where you had different people all claiming to be Pope at the same time, and the way that that was resolved was with the council and so some people the Council of Constance in in fourteen seventeen and so some people. You know, kind of took from that. Well, if I don't like what the pope is doing, if I don't like what the pope is saying, we can just call a council, and they can overturn the you know what this pope has done. Um, so that made popes themselves kind of hesitant to to call councils. Um, there was uh, actually a, a group of cardinals that attempted to hold a council in Pisa in the year fifteen eleven without the consent of the pope. Um, And uh, that didn't work, but that led Pope Leo X to call the 5th Lateran Council in the year 1516, um, which was the year before Martin Luther posted his 95 Thesis. And one of the things that that they did at the 5th Lateran Council was to agree and to proclaim that only the Pope had the authority to convene, to approve, and to dissolve an ecumenical council. So uh, there had just been a council called in the year 1516 to address this issue of conciliarism. So the very next year, 1517, this is when Martin Luther steps onto the scene. And so there was not a lot of enthusiasm in the church around the idea of calling another council. They're like, no, we just we just had a council. We don't need another council. Um, the church was not, you know, real open to doing that. The secular authorities, the secular Catholic authorities that might otherwise put pressure on the church to call a council to deal with a Lutheran issue and the Protestant issue, um, they were a little bit distracted at this point too. The The largest Catholic uh, powers in Europe at the time were in Spain, in Austria, and in Poland. At this time, the world's only superpower was the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire was an expansive, i.e. conquering empire, and it was at that time expanding into Europe. And the front lines of that expansion were, you guessed it, Spain, Austria, and Poland. And so the, the strongest Catholic rulers, who would have otherwise probably put some pressure on the church to call a council, they were engaged in other affairs. They had their, their priorities kind of set elsewhere. And it wasn't really clear, like I said at this time, that, that Protestantism was going to explode into the big thing that, that it did. And so to them, the primary threat to the church was this military threat from the Ottoman Turks that they were busy fighting against. So all those reasons kind of play into why it took so long for the church to respond. But the church did respond um, at the Council of Trent. Um, The Council of Trent um, met between the years 1545 and 1563, so almost 20 years um, it didn't meet continuously during that, that time. It met in kind of three different different stages. Um, it met in Trent, which is a, a town in northern Italy, uh, as opposed to like, you know, in the Vatican or in the Lateran, someplace like that, as a compromise. When the council was called, um, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, wanted the council to be held in Germany because his primary um, hope for the council was that it would reunite the church in Germany. It would reunite the German Protestants with the German Catholics, so that Germany could kind of uh, now um, uh, have a present a united front against the, the foreign threats, the Ottoman Turks um, that were uh, that were threatening Europe. Um, that was Charles V's goal. So he wanted the council to be there in Germany, so that it could, um, you know, he could be more directly involved and push this agenda to reunite the German church. Uh, the Pope, uh, who was Pope Paul the Third, and a lot of leading bishops in the church, they kind of they saw the writing on the wall and they said, "Look, schism is inevitable at this point like that 's already happened we can 't put that cat back in the bag. Um, you know Protestantism is a thing." And what we want is we want a council that's going to be able to clearly delineate between heresy and orthodoxy. We're, we're not really reserving any real hope of reuniting the church at this time, but we want to draw a line in the sand and we want to make clear what we as Catholics do believe. And so we want to hold a council in Italy so that it can be you know, very closely monitored by the papacy and, and make sure that doctrinally it remains sound. Um, and so Trent was a compromised location. It's in northern Italy. It's very close to Austria uh, and Germany, the German states, the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and it's on a, a common trade route between Germany and, and Italy. Um, so that's why it was in Trent. Uh, the first session uh, was held between the years 1545 and 47, and that was suspended because there was an outbreak of the plague. Uh, It resumed again in the year 1551, but then it was suspended in the year 1552 because of um, some political and military unrest, it was no longer safe to keep meeting. Um, And then it didn't meet again until 10 years later, 1562, and concluded in 1563. So even though it it met over this period of 18 years, it didn't meet continuously for 18 years. Um, it, It met in short little bursts. The Council of Trent had three goals. The first goal was to heal the, the split between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, the second goal was reform of the church, address some of these complaints and reform the church from within. And then the third goal was to establish peace in Europe so that Christendom could present a united front against the Ottoman Empire. So that's why they were meeting in this council, that was the goals of the council. Um, and. Uh, we don't have the time to go into all the council proceedings, but I want to just list out what some of the major accomplishments of this council were. Um, it established that apostolic tradition, the tradition that's handed on by the apostles through the church, has the same authority as sacred scripture. Right. that. The divine revelation that's de- entrusted to the church has basically two modes of expression, that of tradition and that of scripture. Scripture is the written part of divi- of the divine revelation, that deposit of faith, but tradition is the unwritten aspect. Um, right? And this makes sense historically too, because if you remember the big, at the beginning, the first few centuries of the church, we didn't have a codified Bible, but yet the church existed and the church continued and the church was strong despite persecution. So it established apostolic tradition, Um, is on par with sacred scripture in terms of the level of authority. It formally defined the canon of scripture to include the deuterocanonical books. Uh, we didn't talk about this earlier, but one of the things that Luther did was he rejected the validity of a number of books in the Old Testament, um, what uh, most Protestants today refer to as the Apocrypha, what we refer to as the Deuterocanon, um, which literally means second canon. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and Luther rejected these books as being non-scriptural. Uh, and these contain things like 1st and 2nd Maccabees, um, which uh, contain a very direct reference to to Purgatory, to the practice of praying for the dead, which implies um, Purgatory. Um, so it's important that these books are in there: Sirach, Baruch, um, uh, so forth. So the Church defined the canon of Scripture and and included these Deuterocanonical books. Um, it uh, said that the Vulgate translation, um, which is the translation of the Scriptures into Latin, was the only translation that would be approved for theological use. Um, It affirmed that baptism removed the guilt of original sin. Uh, This was largely in response to the Anabaptists, right, that were denying that. Um, It defined justification as coming from both faith and works together, and that both faith and works are necessary for salvation. It reaffirmed all seven sacraments. Um, And then in terms of like church practice and, and, and so forth, it permitted that a bishop may only hold one see at a time, right? You can only be bishop of one diocese, and it required that bishops actually live in their diocese. Um, so it's addressing that, that real problem of, uh, of, plur, of pluralism and, um, and absenteeism. Um, it, uh, it reaffirmed the belief in the real presence of the Eucharist um, and, and the doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, it forbade clandestine marriages because that was a problem that the church had been facing. people kind of getting married in the woods you know somewhere and uh because what makes a marriage valid in the eyes of the church is the consent of the couple being married and Um, if you go off in the woods and you exchange your vows, you can come back and say that you're married and who's there to prove it, right? And this becomes an issue. So it forbade forbade clandestine marriages. Um, It upheld celibacy in the priesthood, which was being challenged by Martin Luther. Martin Luther, as a priest and an Augustinian monk, he would go on to become married to a woman who had formerly been a nun. So he had done away with this idea of celibacy. Um, And so Trent upheld that, celibacy in the priesthood. Um, And it promulgated decrees on purgatory, on indulgences, on the veneration of saints, and the veneration of relics and sacred images. Um, All these things were being challenged by Protestants. Uh, A lot of other particular Protestant creeds were discussed and uh, refuted at this council. Um, And then it also introduced a liturgical reform. Um, and this is where we get the the idea of the Tridentine liturgy. You may have heard that the Tridentine Mass, referring to the way that Mass was celebrated prior to the Second Vatican Council, and this is where it gets its name from, Tridentine, from the Council of Trent. Um, so um, uh, it, it it introduced reforms in the liturgy that would be kind of called named under that umbrella, the Tridentine liturgy. Um, other rites within the Western Church um, were with a few exceptions, largely suppressed. Um, There were some historical rites practiced in places in England and and, in the Celtic countries, Scotland and Ireland, uh, in France, and and so forth. Um, A lot of them were repressed in favor of the Tridentine rite that would be the universal norm in the Western church, um, with a few exceptions um, that that are still out there. The Ambrosian rite in the Isle of Milan, for, for example. So it also gave the church the first universal catechism um, the Catechism of the Council of Trent as a teaching tool, um, and it uh, uh, it put into place a lot of administrative and financial reforms. Um, it reformed the seminary system. It put in place very strict requirements for the formation of priests, because a lot of the problems that the church had been facing for you know ever since the 14th century were really because of poor formation among the, the clerics at the time. Um, I had mentioned previously that in the 14th century, when you had the Black Death sweep across Europe, half of the clergy died as a result of the Black Death in very short order. And so in response to that, you know, the church, in, in an effort just to, to get priests ordained and, and out there ministering to the people, you know, ordained a lot of men that arguably should not have been ordained, uh, didn't really have time to... Uh, to oversee a very strict formation um, process and so you had a lot of people out there in the name of the church teaching erroneous things that led to a lot of the abuses that you would see. And so Trent reformed the seminary system and put into place very strict standards for the formation of the clergy, very strict standards for the life and the ministry of the clergy. Um, and uh, and like I said, did away with the practices of, of pluralism and absenteeism and uh, and, and things like um, accepting money for indulgences and and really kind of tightened up our theology and and our teaching on indulgences and in in essence, the Council of Trent addressed most of martin luther 's specific complaints, his legitimate complaints, and a lot of historians will say that the Council of Trent is the reform that Martin Luther wanted. It just came too late um, the The split that that um, that resulted as, um, you know, from Luther's denial of the authority of the church had already happened um, and um, uh, and that cat was just, just out of the bag and would continue to, to be problematic uh, in the church. Uh, The 17th century was full of religious wars um, as a result of of this. Um, Today, things have calmed down a little bit, but you can argue that the public witness of the church is greatly weakened by the division that has been brought about because of this. Um, So, um, today, where things stand, um, as I said, uh, Protestantism is still very much with us and very much a part of the church. Um, but where where do Where do we see Protestants in relation with the Catholic Church today? Uh, well, the catechism of the Catholic Church addresses this. you know I mentioned at the top of this episode that you know we shouldn 't go around calling our Protestant brothers and sisters heretics because for the most part that 's not true they they 're not guilty of denying the Catholic faith because they 've never received the Catholic faith. They were born and raised in these Protestant communions and in these Protestant communities this is where they 've you know we're taught to love Jesus. this is where they were first introduced to the Gospel message. Um, just something that I've observed in my experience when I meet someone who was raised in a Protestant church and then later on became Catholic, they invariably have very, very positive things to say about their upbringing in the Protestant Church because that's where they first learned to love God, first learned to love Christ, first learned about God's love for them, and they view their becoming Catholic not as an abandonment of what they believed as a Protestant, but as the fulfillment of that belief, as an expansion of that belief. It's their, their faith in Christ that they uh, first received as a Protestant that led them into the Catholic Church, into full communion with the church that Christ founded. Um, by contrast, whenever I meet someone who was raised Catholic and left the Catholic Church to become Protestant, um, and they have all kinds of fairly negative things to say about the Catholic Church. And their reason for leaving is very rarely, in my in my experience, I'm just speaking from my experience, very rarely a theological reason for believe, for leaving. Uh, it's it's an emotional reason for leaving because somebody in the Catholic Church that represented the Church to them, and this might be a priest, it might be a nun, it might be a bishop, it might just be a lay Catholic who had a position of authority in the Church, but someone who represented the Church to them, um, you know, did something wrong and personally wounded them and so they've um they walked away from the catholic church for that reason and they found a lot more welcome and, and hospitality in um, you know one of the protestant churches and that's that's where they worship now so, I think that tells us something um, about you know our our duties as Catholics to really represent the Catholic Church well um, when we are especially among our, our Protestant brothers and sisters, um, but also just the the attitude that we should have towards our Protestant brothers and sisters um, as, as separated brethren, not as uh, enemies of the faith but as as people that we really want to bring back into full union. They are in union with us by virtue of their baptism. Um, we want that union to be complete. Um, The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that um, uh, the Church knows, and then she's in the Catechism here, this is paragraph 838, uh, and it's a quote from Lumen Gentium, the document um, from the Second Vatican Council. The Church knows that she's joined in many ways to the baptized who are honored by the name of Christian, but do not profess the Catholic faith in its entirety or have not preserved unity or communion under the successor of Peter. Um, and that quote's from, from Lumen Gentium, but the Catechism goes on. Those who believe in Christ and have been properly baptized are put in a certain, although imperfect, communion with the Catholic Church. So they are in communion with us, it's just an imperfect communion. So when a, when a Protestant becomes Catholic, we don't say, oh, they've converted, Right It's not like they were Hindu and now they're Christian. They were Christian before, and now they're they're still Christian now as a Catholic, but they're now in a more perfect union with the church. Um, And so we don't re-baptize Protestants who have already been baptized. Um, We accept the validity of their baptism and we bring them into full union with the church by administering confirmation and then Eucharist so that they can receive the body of Christ as full members of the body of Christ and uh, receive all of the the graces that God makes available through through his church. So pray for unity in the church. This is Jesus's prayer, uh, his high priestly prayer. On the night before he died in the the garden of Gethsemane, Um, he prayed to God that that we all be one uh, with the same level of unity that that he has with the Father. As you and I are one Father, may they all be one. And so that that should be our prayer today Um, and in our relationship with with Protestants um, of whatever stripe um, that we should move towards unity, that we should um, welcome them um, into the Catholic Church, um, if that 's you know, their desire, uh, and always be a, a good and hospitable um, representative of the church in our in our dealings with them okay um, so that 's protestantism that 's the extent of, of where we 're going to go with that uh, today. Um, This uh, is our 10th episode of uh, our summer school podcast series. My original intent was that this would be a 10-episode series and we would end here, but I think I'm going to do a bonus episode next week. We're going to continue this for one more week because there are some trends that have happened since the Protestant Reformation um, that have um, uh, influenced um, our culture in a negative way that would predispose people against um, the Catholic Church uh, that that I want to address and talk about. Not specific heresies in general, but just some schools of thought, some general schools of thought that are, are really still influential today. So next week, we're going to have a bonus episode about deism and about modernism. Um, and, and what are those things? Where do they come from? And how do they represent a challenge to, uh, to Catholicism uh, today? So I hope you're having a, a wonderful week, a wonderful end to your summer. I'm looking forward to seeing you all back here in just a few weeks on campus. Uh, God bless.